So this morning, this morning we're going to be uh, looking into Revelation chapter 5. And I think that it's so crucial since we're just doing a, like a one-off sermon right now that we kind of get a little bit of a lay of the land before we jump into chapter 5 meaning helping us understand a little bit why the book was written, what its major purposes are, and also um, just a little bit of a lead up into chapter 5. What does uh, chapters 1 through 4 talk about briefly? Um, So before we get started, um, Revelation is written by the Apostle John. And he wrote it while he was exiled on the island of Patmos. And there is actually some sources that say that he was was boiled prior to going there the emperor was threatened by him and so he was boiled and then it didn't work and so the emperor was like i'll just get him out of my hair and so he sent off into this island and and this is where he writes the book of revelation and he writes it around 96 a.d which is roughly four years before um, he passed away And Revelation is also classified as what is called apocalyptic literature, meaning it tells us what's going to happen at the end times. And within the book of Revelation, there's also like many questions of whether or not um, it's metaphor or reality, if we take things exactly what they say, or what's the timeline, so on and so forth. There's so much within that book that it's, uh, we don't have time for that this morning, unfortunately. And I'm also quite grateful for that, because um, that in and of itself is like an entire Revelation 101 course that you have to spend like a whole semester studying in order to understand that. And we don't have time for that today. I'm sure you guys really want to have some lunch and most likely dinner. So um, before we go any further, though, um, I'm so aware of our need for the Lord. So uh, would, we, would you pray with me one more time this morning? God, you are so uh, gracious. You are so kind. And as we'll see um, in, our, in our time in the Word this morning, that you are holy, holy, holy. And I'm so thankful, Lord, for, um, for the Word and to be able to study it and to learn from it and to be changed by it. And although there are so many uh, things that we might just glance over this morning, uh, God, it is my prayer that you are honored and glorified. And so, Lord, if there is anything that I've prepared for this morning um, that is not of you, that is not uh, truth, God, um, prevent me from saying it. And, and Lord, I, I pray that um, those here, including myself, would have uh, softened hearts, ready to hear from your word the truth um, for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we turn there, here's a little bit of a background on the chapters leading up to chapter 5. Chapter 1, um, I almost said Paul, but it's John. Let's get that right. (laughs) Chapter 1, John greets the seven churches, and then he says that he has been given a vision from the Lord that he's been commanded to write about. So John gets out pen and paper, and he starts getting ready to write. And then uh, chapters 2 and 3 is the first thing that he starts to write down, and those are the letters to the seven churches. And within these letters, there's a combination of three different things. There is um, exhortation, there is encouragement, or there is rebuke. And then... Going into chapter 4, there's this dramatic shift where John is then whisked away in his vision to the throne room of God. And while he's in the throne room of God, he is able to see um, what the the 24 elders look like, what the living creatures look like, as well as what God Almighty himself looks like. And we also already read in chapter 4 that the living creatures, they day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So there's already this Uh, worship that is going on within uh, the throne room of God. And the elders, they cast their crowns before the Lord, declaring his worthiness. 
But back in in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, it says this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And that's something that the Lord has brought much conviction in my life over the last little bit, that the Lord's return is near. And it, and it seems kind of silly to say this, but it is actually closer now than it has been at any point in history. The Lord is going to return soon. And yet, in the entirety of the book of Revelation, there's a lot of scary pictures that are being painted, but John helps us to apply this book himself. And in Revelation chapter 13, verse 10, it says this, Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And so regardless of our view of Revelation, whether we agree or disagree, if it's metaphorical or it's reality or what the timeline is or anything like that, the book is written so that we will take stock of our present reality and so that we will live in light of eternity, that we will live in light of the fact that Christ is going to return and he's going to return soon. And so this morning, as we look into Revelation chapter 5, it is my prayer, it is my prayer that we will gain a proper perspective of the one who is worthy, of why he is worthy, and then I'm hoping that we will see uh, how a right understanding of the gospel will cause us to respond in worship. And the response in worship will include um, how we respond while we sing, but it also includes how we respond when we leave this building. And so that brings us to our text this morning, which is Revelation chapter 5. Um, now, if you do not have a copy of God's Word on you right now, uh, and you would like one, please raise your hands. Dave has a number of copies right now, and if you need one, take it, because we want you looking in to God's Word. Um, and if you do not have one at home, take it with you. Just read it. That's what we want. Um, if you do have one at home, maybe just return it to the back afterwards. Uh, but would you stand with me and turn to Revelation chapter 5 um, while we read this uh, together? And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, worthy, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. May God bless the reading of his words to our souls this morning. You may have a seat. So our first point for this morning is reason to weep. Reason to weep. Now, remember that the stage has been set in Revelation chapter 4. We, we know that John is seeing this vision, this scene that's happening in the throne room of God. And, and he sees the elders, he sees the creatures, he sees God the Father, and God with this absolute authority is seated upon the throne, and in his right hand he is holding a scroll. And given that John's reaction to the fact that the scroll, that no one was worthy to open the scroll, is, is weeping, I think it's pretty important that we understand exactly what this scroll is. And so, I'm going to read a quote from John MacArthur that helps us to understand. It says this, The scroll John saw in God's hand is the title deed to the earth, which he will give to Christ. Unlike other such deeds, however, it does not record the descriptive detail of what Christ will inherit, but rather how he will regain his rightful inheritance. He will do so by means of the divine judgments about to be poured out on the earth. While the scroll is a scroll of doom and judgment, it is also a scroll of redemption. It tells how Christ will redeem the world from the usurper Satan and those men and demons who have collaborated with him. Very brief, but that is what the scroll is. It is something of judgment, but also redemption. And then in this scene, we have this mighty angel. We don't know exactly who this angel is, but this angel asks the question, who is worthy to open the, the, the scroll and to break its seals? Giving us the impression that the scroll will not be fulfilled unless it is opened. And so God, the Father, again, seated with absolute authority, is holding the scroll and the angel proclaiming and this, who is worthy, and nobody comes up. Nobody answers. Because nobody is worthy, nobody could even look into it. And so John is watching this scene unfold, knowing the full scope of what it means if this scroll were to remain sealed, that judgment and redemption will only come if it is opened, and without it being opened, there's complete and utter hopelessness. And it's in this moment when John realizes that it cannot be opened or that that there is no one worthy that John begins to weep. It it begs the question, what if? What if it cannot be opened? What would that mean? What What if judgment or redemption never happens? You have to think of this scene this way though, and that is like, has anybody here, you can raise your hands if you want to, I'm, I'm the youth guy, so I like that. Um, has anybody here ever read or watched The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe? Okay, how many people here have seen it more than once, or read it more than once? Okay, fantastic, okay. So think of it this way. It's a fantastic series. For those of you who haven't read it, I apologize. The good guys win, that's a spoiler, sorry. Spoiler alert, <laughs> the good guys win. Um, I hope you know that. But when reading or watching The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, especially for the second time, even if you know what the outcome is, even if you know that the stone table is going to break, that Aslan doesn't remain dead, you still can't help but watch or read with sadness or sorrow or these feelings of despair. John Piper says this, If there is no one found worthy who is worthy to open the scroll, 
there will be no triumph for the gospel, no marriage supper with the Lamb, no new heaven and no new earth, no eternal life, only weeping. This is what John is trying to communicate when he is weeping. I, I picture John actually like devastated and broken on his knees face to the ground. And the reason I do that is because the same words that are used to translate weeping loudly here is actually the same that is used to describe when Peter denies Jesus Christ and he goes away and he weeps bitterly. So Peter's not even like present at the crucifixion of Jesus because he's so ashamed of what he's done. He doesn't want to see anything. He's off by himself. And so that's where I, I just picture John on his knees face to the ground. He's so gripped by despair, by grief, he sees just how desperate and hopeless life would be if the scroll remained sealed. But there's something else that we know about John, and that is that John was present during the resurrection of Jesus. And so he's not, he's not looking at this situation and, and thinking that God's plan of redemption had failed. This was always the plan. It was always going to happen. But for a brief moment, he asked the question, what if? John has just witnessed this angel asking, is anyone worthy to open the scroll? And no one was worthy, not one. Even the mighty angel, technically sinless, was not worthy to open the scroll. There's a reason to weep. And so John is so aware, so aware that without Jesus, without anybody who is worthy to open the scroll, that the future is bleak. No matter how hard anybody tries, no matter how many efforts we put forward, no one is worthy to open the scroll. Every generation is like Oprah or Gandhi or whoever does all these good works, no one has come even close to being worthy enough to open the scroll. It's too far out of reach. And, and what, what sorrow there is for those who have spent their entire lives to pursue something that is ultimately going to fail. But how many of us in this room have tried to do that ourselves? Have tried to achieve salvation in our own strength, whether or not we say it, but thinking that maybe we could be worthy to open the scroll. And then we realize now that all our efforts are completely in vain that it's absolutely hopeless, that your friends, your families, your coworkers, all, everybody trying in their own strength, it's completely in vain. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. No one is worthy to open the scroll. And so John saw all of this, and he weeps, and he weeps loudly. And so right now, I really hope that we're all feeling this weight of what that would mean. Is anyone worthy because none of us here is worthy. Feel that weight. Let it be something that forces you to your knees. And so John, again, picturing him still on his knees, face to the ground, he has an elder say to him, weep no more. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Weep no more, John. John, it's okay. Don't worry about it. John, lift up your gaze. There's hope. And so John lifts his gaze slowly and looks towards the throne of God. But he sees a lamb. 
John expected to see this this picture of absolute power, of absolute authority, being told to look, behold, there's a lion of the tribe of Judah. And instead of seeing this absolute authority, he sees a lamb. But not just any lamb, he sees a lamb that has been slain. It's the weakest of the weak. As his gaze goes towards the lamb as well, and as our gaze goes towards the lamb, we will see what is our revealed hope. And so imagine feeling the weight that that John does. And then finally looking to the lamb and seeing, finally, finally there's somebody who is worthy to open the scroll and to open its seals and to look into it. The lamb who was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is Jesus Christ. And the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, this is actually a reference back into the Old Testament. There's a lot of references in the Old Testament um, within the book of Revelation. And this is only one of a few we're going to talk about. So in Genesis 49, it talks about the lion of the tribe of Judah saying that the, the scepter will not depart from Judah. It's one of the earliest references to Jesus Christ. And it gives us this picture of the king of the jungle. Somebody who's strong enough to conquer what needs to be conquered. And then the second reference here in this little passage is the root of David. The root of David takes us back to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11 verse 1 says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The elder is declaring that who he wants John to look to, to gaze to, is the Messiah. But the description of Jesus doesn't stop right there. It actually continues. So we see that he is not only a lion, he is strong, he is powerful, and he is able to conquer. We see that he is also the promised Messiah coming through the lineage of David. But we also see when John lifts his gaze, he sees a lamb. And and lambs were often used in Old Testament sacrifices because they were the symbol of purity and blamelessness, something that was sacrificed in order to take away sins. But this lamb, I don't know if you caught it, this lamb doesn't really look normal at all. It has seven horns and it has seven eyes. Um, It's not normal. If you are somebody here that has animals that you take care of, if it has seven horns and seven eyes, you probably have an issue and you might want to get that checked out. But it's important to know why there was horns and why there was seven eyes. And that is because uh, back in biblical times, horns were this symbol of strength of power, and eyes were actually the picture of wisdom and knowledge. And the number seven is the number of of perfection. So we see the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, we know it's the Messiah, and we see a lamb who is perfect in power, perfect in strength, he is perfect in knowledge and wisdom. He is omnipotent, and he is omniscient. And when it refers to the the seven spirits of God that go throughout all the earth, that's actually a picture of the Holy Spirit in his absolute fullness. So this is the lamb that died on the cross for our sins. And, And he was able to do so because he was as powerful as a lion. He's able to conquer death, but he was as pure and as blameless as a lamb able to cover sins by shedding of his blood. Now back in verse 5, back in verse 5 when it says that the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, it's referring to this, this reason alone that he is alone is able to open the scroll. 
No one else is worthy because only he has conquered the grave, because only he has died. But if you look at the nuance in the text there, it doesn't say, it doesn't say that Jesus conquered the grave and then as this, like, this consolation prize, he was able to open the scroll. It's not some bonus round like he died for something else. It's, it's that he, he conquered so that he could open the scroll. This, this was the plan all along. 2 Timothy, 1 Peter, and Ephesians, they all tell us that there was this plan prior to the foundations of the world, prior to the earth being created, prior to the sin and the fall of Adam and Eve. There was never another plan. The plan was never going to fail, and Jesus has always been the solution to our biggest problem. The scroll was never going to remain sealed. So this hope that is revealed is that Jesus has conquered, that the scrolls are broken, that there will be a marriage supper with the Lamb, that there will be a new heaven, that there will be a new earth, that we will have the opportunity to live with him for eternity in a place where there is absolutely no weeping. And after John is commanded to weep no more, the elder then directs his gaze to the lamb, weep no more, behold. The NIV translates it simply as see. Weep no more, see. Look, John, set your gaze upon the lamb. So my question for you this morning is how often do we do that? How often do we like really take time to look and behold the lamb? The one who was slain, who is perfect in power, who is perfect in knowledge and in wisdom. The one who sent his spirit to be with you. The shift in writing that's happened has moved from this complete feeling of hopelessness and despair to this revealed hope in Jesus Christ. To behold him. So what are you gazing at right now? What is it that you are setting your mind and your eyes upon that isn't Christ? You need to behold him. You need to look to him. Look to Jesus. Let me ask you another question, and that is, um, this is a prime opportunity for me. What do you do when you need a drink of water, when you're thirsty? What do you do? You get a drink of water, right? I needed that. Thank you. And what do you do when you are hungry? Well, you look for something to eat. How come it's when we have these feelings of hopelessness and despair that we don't look to the one who gives hope? I'm guilty of it. It's like my first reaction when something goes wrong is to look into myself. We had a difficult day yesterday, and I definitely look. You can talk to my wife. I will not hide it. We had a hard day, and, and I was looking at myself, and it took my wife sitting us down as a family to say, we need to, we need to fix our eyes on Christ. We need to behold the lamb. We need to kneel before the lion. Let me encourage you with something else, though, and that is the more that you look to Jesus, the more you're going to want to look at him. And I know this to be true as well because, uh, bless Pastor Chris, um, he's been such an encouragement to me, but I remember sitting down with him for lunch sometime last November. We were having mucho burrito, and he asked me, he's like, hey, Josh, how's your time with the Lord going? I said, well, it's great. It's like, I'm up every single morning. I'm listening to a sermon. I'm like, I'm, I, this is great. It's fantastic. 
And, and he looks at me, and you probably know already know what he's going to say, is like, no, you need to stop doing that. You can't listen, like, don't listen to a sermon because the sermon is no substitute for God's word directly to your soul. So open the Bible. Open the Bible, Josh. So what you're going to do, Josh, is go to the Psalms, and you're going to start reading in Psalm chapter 1. And you start reading Psalm chapter 1, and you find a verse, and you write about it, and then you write a prayer about it. John Piper says, um, I, I write with a pen because often my pen has eyes that I do not. And if you're anything like me, my, my brain moves like far too fast for me to keep up. And when I write with a pen, it helps it to slow down. And so I said, okay, well, I was a little skeptical. I was like, I didn't think that listening to a sermon was all that bad. And then I get to Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man, and verse 2, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I was like, all right, there's the conviction I need. I'm, I need to set my gaze directly on Christ. I need to get into God's word and fix my gaze upon him. I need to behold him. And so the last many months have been fantastic. It hasn't been perfect. I've missed many days, but I can tell you this, that the more I gazed upon the Lord, the more I didn't want to look anywhere else. The more the things that were difficult to, to endure, even such things as yesterday, even though it was humbling for my wife to come and say, hey, we need to set our eyes on Jesus, it's so good and it's so needed because I have a revealed hope that is in Jesus Christ. There's a reason that redemption life begins by saying abide in Jesus Christ. Abide in Christ. Look to Jesus. Fix your eyes upon him because he is your revealed hope. And so the entirety of the chapter in Revelation chapter 5 here is leading up to this moment. We've progressively slowed down in this narrative. If you were to read it over this week, because I know I can tend to speak a little fast, um, if you were to read it over this week, you'll notice that it seems like John is slowing things down so that we stop and we look at what's about to happen. Because this is the climax of the passage, and that is the Lamb takes the scroll and heaven erupts in worship. Because this is just what happens. This is what happens when you behold Christ. This is what happens when you see the one who is worthy. Worship pours out because when you fix your gaze on Jesus, when you behold the glory of the Lamb and you begin to understand exactly what he did for you on that cross, you cannot help but respond in worship. And so the Lamb has taken the scroll. And the immediate response of the 24 elders is that they fall down. And they fall down while they're holding, they're holding these harps and they're holding bowls full of incense, golden bowls full of incense. And the harps were used a lot in Old Testament times for worship and for prophecy. And the, uh, the, the bowls are representing the, the prayers of the saints. It's also a reference to Old Testament sacrifice, saying that our prayers are a pleasing aroma, a pleasing offering to the Lord. And they fall down and they begin singing this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy are you, O Lord. Your blood ransomed people for God. And Oxford defines the word ransom as, uh, the, as this, to, to obtain the release of a prisoner by making a payment that is demand, demanded. To obtain the release of a prisoner by making a payment demanded. So for those of you who are new here this morning, 
welcome. Uh, for those of you who have been here for a long time, welcome. For those of you who have grown up in the church, or for those of you who have never heard the gospel, that's what we need to do right now. Because we just read, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And we just read how he, was, how he ransomed us for God. What does that mean? If you've been listening at all this morning, you'll have heard many references to the gospel. Many references to redemption and references to the hope that's given through Jesus Christ. And without the gospel, without reminding ourselves of what Jesus did for us, then, then declaring his worth and responding in worship seems mundane and, and boring and just not worth it because you're not responding to a truth that, has been change, that, is, that is changing you, a truth that is foundational. And if we don't do that, then we won't. If we don't spend time reminding ourselves of the gospel, then we probably won't be encouraged to abide in Christ, to grow in the church, and to reach the community. And so what is the gospel? Well, I find it helpful to remind myself of the gospel using four simple words, and I know that Chris has shared this as well, and that is God, man, Christ response. And so what does that mean? Well, God, we start with that first word. God is holy, holy, holy. We've seen that in Revelation chapter 4. And because God is holy, because he is perfect, because he is set apart, he is unable to coexist with sin. He cannot dwell with sin. There's a reason why Adam and Eve had to leave the garden. There's a reason why they had to, or that why they were not allowed to go back in, why they could no longer walk with God, because their sin, their sin separated them from a holy God. The second word is man. So if God is holy, man is not. Man, we, we are sinners. We are filthy sinners. We, are, we aren't worthy to open the scroll. We cannot, at this moment, we cannot coexist with God in our sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And so if God's holiness in our sin, if, that is, if there's this separation there, there needs to be this bridge that helps us um, with salvation. So, so picture it this way. There's this vast chasm, this vast chasm between us and the Lord. And, and no matter what we do, we cannot create a bridge. We cannot get across. It's like trying to jump to the moon. You're not going to be able to do it. You can't. No matter how many times you try, no matter how high you jump, you're not going to make it. This is the same type of feeling of hopelessness. If there's nothing that we can do in our strength, this is the same weight that John was feeling at the beginning of our chapter. What if there was no way to bridge the gap? What if Christ never was raised from the dead, then all our preaching would be in vain? That was what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. But then our revealed hope that we've seen in this passage, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ walks in and he stands before the judge and he says, with my shed blood, I will pay the ransom. The payment that you are demanding to be paid, I will do that because it is unaffordable to this person. This person cannot pay it for themselves and so I'm going to do it. And so he dies on the cross, he sheds his blood, he covers your sin, he paid the ransom for you. And so what is our response to this? Well, our response to the gospel is Romans 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The, the chasm that separates us from God between our sin 
and between God's holiness is then bridged by the blood of Jesus, by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And because of that, because of that, we have the opportunity, if we confess that he is Lord and believe in our hearts that he raised him from the dead, that we can spend eternity with him. This is such an amazing and foundational truth. And, it, and we need to be reminded of this like day in and day out. No matter how long you have been attending church, if it's your first time or you've been here for so long, you need to remind yourself of the gospel every single day because without the gospel, we can all agree that there is absolutely no hope. And without the one who is worthy to open the scroll, without the one, uh, without the lion or the lamb, without the promised Messiah, there would be no reason for worship. There would be absolutely no reason for worship. There would only be reason to weep. So if you're anything like me, hearing the gospel, talking it out, studying it over and over and over again, it begins to get me a little fired up. I get really excited. And it gets me to a place where I want to raise my hands. I want to clap. I want to shout. I want to sing. I want to go to the nearest mountaintop and be able to declare the praise of God to anybody who is within earshot. But I also want to get into their kitchen. That's what my wife and I say. Get into the place that nobody wants you to be opening cupboards in. Get into their kitchen and share the gospel with them because I want them to have what I have. I want to share it with those around me because the gospel is significantly more exciting than something like watching your favorite sports team score a goal. I'm a sports fan. I love watching hockey. I'm sad to admit I'm a Leafs fan. I'm sorry about that. Um, but when my team scores, yeah, it feels, ugh. But when my team scores, or when my team wins a game, I get excited. I jump up off the couch. But there's one thing about that game that is so different than the gospel. That game is completely meaningless. That game is completely fleeting. It doesn't give you this lasting joy, only the promise of joy for a moment. But the gospel, the joy that you get from the gospel is life-changing. It is life-giving. It is something that is eternal. And so when we see Jesus for who he is, when we remember Jesus for what he has done, we will respond in worship. You will never want to keep it to yourself. Let me, let me ask you another question, and this, is a, this has been a great analogy for me, and some of those who have been a part of youth have heard this one already, and that's okay. You're going to hear it again and again and again. But my question for you is, um, standing here, if you were to look at me and get a, get a good look, um, do I look like I've been hit by a speeding train? No. The reason I haven't been hit by a speeding train is because, well, you can tell, I'm still walking. I haven't any scars all over the place. I still look, or at least I think I look normal. There is no evidence, there is no evidence right now that I've been hit by a speeding train. Why? Because it is impossible to encounter a force that significant and remain unchanged. Do you see where I'm going with this? It is absolutely impossible. It is impossible to encounter the significant force of God Almighty and of the gospel and not be changed. Your change will result in worship. What is worship? Well, most of the time we think as, uh, of worship as strictly like singing music, what we listen to in the car, what we sing at church. But worship is actually so much more than that. It is anything that we do that ascribes worth to God. It is declaring his worth 
to those who are around you, those who believe and those who don't. It, it is the overflow of a greater understanding of who God is and what he has done. Look at the, the, what they sing and what they say um, in verses 9 through 14. We're just going to read those stanzas again. It says this, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jumping down, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And again, jumping down, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So in the first two stanzas there, they're ascribing worth to the Lamb. The last one, they're ascribing worth to both God the Father and God the Son. And what we see here, though, is not only is worship a response to what the Lamb has accomplished, but if you'll notice the, the, the words that I tried to emphasize while I was reading, hopefully I did it as much as I thought I did in my head, and that is, worship is about the Lord. What that means, the flip side of that coin, is that worship isn't about us at all. Worship is about the Lord. It's not about us. And when we have that proper perspective that the worship that we have is about the Lamb, when we are fully satisfied in Jesus Christ, when we treasure Him beyond everything else, then our worship becomes this thing where we begin to share the gospel with those who are in our vicinity because it just pours out of us. We don't want to keep it to ourselves. Why would we want to? So Christ was ransomed to slay, uh, ransom to, sorry, Christ was slain to ransom people from every tribe and language and people and nation. That is our responsibility. Think of it this way. What a privilege it was that we weren't worthy to open the scroll. And yet God has entrusted us with the glorious gospel to share it with those around us. Let me say that again. What a privilege it is that we were not worthy to open the scroll. What a privilege it is that we are not worthy because all that does is magnify the greatness of God and that while we were still, still sinners, he died for us. All this should excite us to fix our gaze upon Christ even more. To be able to say what Paul does, to, I want to live as Christ and to die as gain. Looking forward to eternity. And so now we ha have the question, so what? What does this all mean for us today? Well, where are you in your walk with Christ right now? Are you still in that place weeping over the what if question? What if Christ didn't die? You need to remind yourself of the truth of the gospel. You need to remind yourself of the revealed hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And for those of you who ha are veterans in the faith, who have been going to church for a long time, you need to do the same thing. You need to look towards the gospel all the time because guess what? In eternity, we've been given this picture into the throne room of God. What are we going to be doing? We're going to be singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. We're going to be singing about the gospel. It's not going to be about us. It's all going to be about the Lord. So remind yourself of the hope that, found, that is found in Jesus and respond in worship. Hear me one more time this morning, loved ones. The, the target today is our hearts. Because if our heart is not changed by God, then we're going to continue weeping over the question, what if? And we're going to continue weeping in a way that our unbelief states that we don't believe that he who came has conquered. 
that we don't believe the lion is strong enough. And we won't respond in worship. Why would we? We're not changed by anything. We wouldn't want to. But if your heart is changed, if your heart is gripped by the magnificence of the gospel, then your worship is going to be authentic. It's going to lack the battle of fear that everybody has, myself included. What are, what are other people going to think when I raise my hands? What are people going to think if I sing? What are people going to think if I clap? What are people going to think if I share the gospel? That I might be rejected. But with a proper understanding of the gospel, that fear moves from man and shifts over to Jesus Christ. A fear of the Lord. And your life will have this, this evidence where you are looking forward to what it's going to look like in eternity. You will respond without worrying about what others think around you, whether it is raising your hands or singing or sharing your faith without thinking. It just comes out because it's just the overflow of what he has done. And just like the elders in our passage, when we spend eternity with Christ, we will fall down on our knees in worship of the Savior. But we won't fall down because we're forced to. We're going to fall down because that's where we want to be. Because he alone is worthy. And so, what better way to respond this morning than to sing together in unified voices. To sing to the one who is worthy of every song, praise, or breath that we have. To the name that is above every other name. To the one who is holy. To the one who is like absolutely no other. Jesus Christ. Let me pray. God, you are so kind and gracious to us. Your word says, Lord, that you are holy, 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 and that we are not. There is no one righteous, no, not one. So let it not be lost on us this morning that we are nowhere close to being worthy to open the scroll. We are nowhere close to being able to earn our way into eternity without the gospel. It's completely hopeless. But let this feeling of, of hopelessness, let, let it magnify the greatness of God. May it magnify his grace and his mercy that he displayed at the cross for us. So God, I pray that we would never move on from the gospel. We're going to be singing about it for eternity. So God, may we continue to do so here in this place, singing to the, the King of kings, to the Lord of lords, the one who is worthy of our praise. We love you. We thank you for your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.